Seven years ago, there was a strange, intimate moment between a champion and an athlete in the act of becoming a champion. The occasion was the men's 400 meters final at the Rio Olympics. South Africa's Wade Finikirk, 24, was running in lane 8 principally against the USA's LaShawn Merritt and Granada's Karani James, both Olympic gold medalists. In the event, if you'll excuse the pun, neither Merritt's nor James's presence in Rio made any difference to Finikirk, who powered to gold and smashed the world record. On hand to describe it all was Michael Johnson, the man who had held the 400 meters record for 17 years. This is the story of Johnson and Finikirk, and what happened to Finikirk afterwards, and caused him to wander in the wilderness. Welcome to the Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Over the last couple of months, you might have registered a murmur or two about Wade Finikirk as he campaigns on the European summer circuit. You know the guy, the wiry South African sprinter who, as a 24-year-old in Rio in 2016, became the fastest man alive over 400 meters to win the Olympic gold medal and break the world and the Olympic record in the process. Having heard and read snippets about Wade, he might now be powering along the back straight of your consciousness, about to make the turn into the home stretch of full recognition. Hopefully you can see him properly for the first time in years. Ah, that's right, you remember the guy now. In Rio, he didn't so much as run in the Olympic final as glide in it. From lane 8, he floated with long strides and upright poise to beat his nearest rivals by 5 or 6 metres to clock a time of 43.03 seconds, an astonishing achievement. To give you some sort of contextual frame in which to make sense of that time and make it a little less abstract, 44 seconds for the event is considered the alpha and omega of things in men's 400 meters athletics, and Finikok won the gold medal and broke the world record in Rio with a time of 43.03 seconds. Anything below 44 seconds and you are out on your own, where precious few have gone before. This is running a lap in the far galaxies. It is a time of awe and wonder and, I imagine, strange weightless tranquility and peacefulness that comes from being alone and in pain. What does 44 seconds feel like to you, the listener? More purposefully, what might you do in 44 seconds? Well... It's too little time to boil an egg and probably too little time to make yourself a cup of coffee or tea. You might brush your teeth in 44 seconds, although, then again, you might not, unless you're one of those absent-minded and spectacularly incompetent teeth brushers. 44 seconds is about the time it takes to walk to the car and open the car door prior to a journey, to adjust the seat, look in the rearview mirror and buckle up before reversing out of the driveway. In that time, Finikok has circled the track, beaten the best in the business, and is now gasping for breath on the side of the track like a freshly landed fish. Let's be clear. 
to take nearly a full second off that 44-second benchmark compounds this notion of running in the far galaxies. Running a time of just over 43 seconds means you're running on the lip of the known. Language becomes a problem here, so we use phrases like untested waters and uncharted territory, not because we want to take refuge in cliché, but because it's all we've got as we try and wrap our head around the phenomenon and give it some coherent shape and form. In running 43.03 seconds from lane 8 in Rio seven years ago, Fenikirk beat Michael Johnson's long-standing record in the men's 400 metres by just over one hundredth of a second. Johnson's record, set in Seville, Spain, in the 1999 World Championships, had stood for 17 years. Johnson was on hand in the BBC commentary booth in Rio to watch Fenikirk break his record, and although reliant on what it described, Johnson's commentary was a curious and intriguing moment all by itself. Racing against Fenikirk in the Olympic final that day were seven other athletes, two of whom were expected to test him, if not beat him. One of them was LeSean Merritt of the USA, the 2008 Olympic champion and the only man to dip under 44 seconds that season. The other was Karani James of Grenada, the 2012 Olympic champion and another major potential obstacle. Neither got close. Listening to Johnson commentate on the breaking of the record which he set is a lovely moment and something that television, with its immediacy and scope, is very good at. Fenikok is blithely going about making history, breaking world and Olympic records, and putting a gold medal around his neck in the process, but having Johnson on hand to offer comment on his record being broken closes the circle. It's sort of like completing one full lap of the rhetorical track. Johnson responds to the final as an athlete and former athlete, not as a record holder who has just been shown that it's a record he no longer holds. He's magnanimous and excited and joyful. There's only Freudenfreude in his voice, if we understand Freudenfreude to be the opposite of Schadenfreude, which, roughly speaking, means to take pleasure in the sorrow or the misfortune of others. Quote, That was a massacre. I mean, Fanikirk just put those guys away, said Johnson, as he spoke about James and Merritt finishing in second and third place, respectively. For all of his generosity, Johnson also couldn't wrap his head around the stellar breadth of Fanikirk's achievement. I would hazard that there were several reasons for this, one of them was intensely practical. If we assume that Johnson's monitor was showing him what we were seeing as viewers back home, Johnson couldn't see Fenikirk. Remember, Fenikirk was in the far outside lane, lane 8. The television cameraman, either because his camera didn't have sufficient horizontal mobility to show what was going on in lane 8, or because it was incorrectly positioned within the stadium itself, didn't show Fenikirk for much of the race. Both James and Merritt were in the middle lanes, and both had gone out quickly, so it made sense, sort of, to focus upon them. This, however, was to neglect Fenikirk as he ghosted along in his far-off orbit, the far-off orbit of lane 8. Fenikirk was there, 
because Johnson told us he was there, but like the television cameraman, we didn't see him on our screens. For at least half of the race, he was running off the screen. Johnson commentates much of the race blind, therefore, inferring Finikirk's presence rather than actually seeing it. There's a neat parallelism here, because running in lane 8 means you're running your race blind, insofar as you can't see anyone else in front of you. As far as both Finikirk and Johnson were concerned, it was a classic case of the blind leading the blind. The 200-meter-long sequence where Finikirk was literally invisible added to the drama of the race, because it was as if Finikirk came from nowhere to win it. You couldn't see it for yourself if you were watching this particular feed live back in 2016, but you can see it for yourself today on YouTube, just to reach your own conclusions and see the man from nowhere going to become the fastest man alive. To recap, in Rio, Finikok was not only too fast for James and Merritt, he was too fast for Johnson, up in the commentary booth that is. He was also too fast for us, because, to reiterate my original point, we cannot see him, and he was therefore too fast for that which is meant to capture everything, television. The second thing that gave credence to the idea that Johnson, the former record holder, struggled to wrap his mind around Finikok's achievement was that he literally stumbled in his commentary. He recognized Finikok had gone out frighteningly quickly, but his narration snagged when he raised the idea that perhaps Finikok had run the second half of his race faster than the first. This is what, in athletics parlance, is called negative splits, and Johnson helpfully told us this at the time. Now, Johnson knew that there's no way that Finico could have run the race more quickly in the second 200 meters than he did in the first 200, particularly not in a sprint event like the 400 meters. In a useful article by Jean-Pierre Vazel on trackstats.com, for example, Vazel tells us exactly how long the second half of Finico's race took, and Vazel will help us put this, if you'll excuse the mixed metaphor, particular straw man to bed. Breaking his race down into 50-meter segments is useful here because it shows the degree to which Finikok slowed down in clear, unambiguous terms. In the 50 meters from the halfway mark to the 250-meter mark, Finikok took 5.10 seconds. In the next 50 meters, he took 5.40 seconds, meaning that he ran his third hundred in 10.5 seconds. His slowing down was even more graphic in his last 100 meters, as you would expect in such a physically crushing race. The 50 meters from 300 meters to 350 meters, Finikok ran in 5.8 seconds. His final 50 was even slower than that. It was run in 6.2 seconds. The negative progression, therefore, was as follows through 50 meter increments in the second half of Finikok's race. 5.1 seconds, 5.4 seconds, 5.8 seconds, and 6.2 seconds. As we might reasonably expect, Finikok slowed down appreciably in the second half of the final, running it in a cumulative time of 22.5 seconds, roughly 2 seconds slower than his first 200 meters. Given what we know now, the question that needs to be asked is, why did Johnson 
the greatest 400-meter athlete that has ever lived, although not perhaps the best 400-meter commentator that ever lived, makes such an elementary error. For me, the following conclusion is inescapable. For all his magnanimity and for all his generosity of spirit, Johnson was still unable to come to terms with the scale and import of Fanikirk's run in the act of describing it. We tend to think of mistakes as random, isolated events, but mistakes have a logic, and this logic is often part of a broader pattern or architecture. Johnson's world record, remember, had stood for 17 years, a length of time that's beginning to suggest itself as interminable. Time is pretty long time, in other words. Maybe I should just amend that to say, in children's language, a long, long time. But whether we are talking about a pretty long time or a long, long time shouldn't detain us now as we hurry to the finish line. In all our temporal and chronological sensitivity, all we really need to know is that when Johnson set the record, Fanikirk, who was born in 1992, had just turned seven. The record was set in record time, which is what the setting of records is really all about, and it was set a long time ago. The Games in Rio, to offer another example, are the fifth Olympics to have taken place since Johnson set his record. And then, one day, in significantly less than a minute, what has stood for 17 years gets smashed. Johnson was shocked. His head had been spun around, and he hadn't even seen Fenikuk blaze like a scalded cat along the back straight. His shock and his flirtation with the notion of negative splits must be seen within this context. But Johnson was also very good here, because he had the presence of mind to explain to viewers what negative splits meant. I said earlier that Johnson's commentary was so pathos-filled, because he approached it as one would an athlete or former athlete, rather than as a record holder. Johnson, however, was also sharp enough and thoughtful enough to remember that there were viewers out there who needed to be kept informed. All his talk of negative splits might be a bit of a rabbit hole, but it didn't prevent Johnson from telling us about the rabbit hole's exact dimensions. The fact that Johnson went off track, partly because he can't see anything, or so we suspect, and partly because he raised the specter of negative splits, combines to deepen an already momentous occasion. I don't think that anyone much minded that Johnson veered off towards the long jump bit, so to speak, because it served paradoxically to make him more human. We can almost hear his mind grapple with the stark fact of Fenikirk blazing to the world record, Johnson's world record, right before Johnson's eyes. That he couldn't quite believe what he'd been seeing made him more and not less of a man. It was wonderful to behold, like seeing something new and precious come into the world. This deepening of Johnson's surprise gave his commentary weight, and because he brought natural gravitas to his position behind the microphone, the gravitas that only two consecutive Olympic gold medals in the men's 400 metres can bring, it was a wonderful moment. Listening to someone utterly without schadenfreude talk you through not only something momentous and rare, but something he was instrumental in setting up and establishing as the man behind the miracle.
In summary, let's add up just how fast Finneekirk was that August in Rio so we can round this part of the podcast off and head towards other things. On the track that night, he was too fast for Merritt and James, which translated into being too fast for the television camera that was largely concerned with focusing upon them. Being too fast for the camera meant in turn that Finneekirk was too fast for Johnson, the commentator, at least until the turn. After the turn, he came into focus. This is no figure of speech. He came into focus for everyone, for Johnson in particular, but also for us, as we all began to realize that now the camera angle shows all the athletes in the frame, Finneekirk was leading Merritt and James. More than that, he was, to coin a phrase, well on track for a world record. It was a world record, needless to say, that was only partly recorded for posterity. Such are the limitations of running in lane 8, which is where Finneekirk was presumably put because he wasn't expected to medal, which makes the idea that he actually won the Olympic gold and broke the world record in the process even more amazing. Finneekirk was also too fast for Johnson, the former athlete, a banal point but a necessary one. He was too fast for Johnson because he'd beaten Johnson's world record in, Johnson's words here, a massacre. If that doesn't all add up to a comprehensive definition of speed, then I don't know what does. It sort of reminds me of that famous still frame in the Lucky Luke books by René Goskini and Albert Udizo, where Luke is so quick on the draw that he manages to put a bullet through his shadow as it falls on a barn wall in front of him. In conclusion, Wade was so fast in Rio that we didn't see it, or, to be slightly more accurate as we lose some of our rhetorical effect, at least for some of the race in Rio, Wade was too fast to be able to see it, too fast even for the all-seeing eye of television. If that isn't the coolest way to break a world record, I don't know what is. The athlete that was too fast for the record to be recorded. Fourteen months after he broke the world record in October 2017, Finnekoek tore two anterior cruciate ligaments in his knee playing touch rugby, a literally career-limiting move of astonishing proportions. Anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL, injuries are either replaced with hamstring ligaments from the patient's own body or through a more cutting-edge technique called an allograft. The allograft technique involves taking a frozen hamstring from a cadaver and inserting it in the patient's knee. This is what happened in Finnekoek's case, the surgery being done in Vail, Colorado, by the pioneers of the technique, Robert Leprade and Volker Musal. One of the advantages of the allograft technique is that when the surgeon takes ligaments from the patient's hamstring rather than from a cadaver, you are, in effect, performing two operations upon them. For all the sophistication of such techniques, they are fiddly and involve extreme precision, involving clearing out the knee, drilling through bone, and reattaching the ligaments. We are dealing here with the human body, which has millions of nerve endings, and often the knee and its support and stability doesn't feel quite right. I thought Professor John Patricius of Witz Sport and Health in Johannesburg put it well when he used the analogy of replacing a car part 
like a fan belt or a radiator, to demonstrate what replacing the ACL isn't like. Quote, Don't forget, there are lots and lots of receptors in the human body, and what you are really doing in such an operation is that you are throwing out the biology of a body in a way that it isn't used to. You really can't think of it in terms of replacing the part of a car. All of this was compounded in Finicoke's case by the fact that he tried to return too soon after his allograft. In July 2019, he suffered what is called a bone bruise of his femur or tibia or both, and his recuperation was severely compromised. Two years after being out of the frame for over half the men's 400 meters final in Rio, he was now out of the frame more comprehensively than he had ever been. After the bruising, he didn't hurry things. He worked his way back carefully. At the 2020 Tokyo Olympics held in 2021, he came third in heat four of six heats, which qualified him for the semi-finals, of which, confusingly, there were three. In one of these three semi-finals, he finished fifth out of eight, and although he managed to improve upon his time in the heat, he still ran a time of over 45 seconds, and he therefore missed out on a place in the final. Gold in that final was won by Stephen Gardner of the Bahamas in a sub-44 second time. Gardner won from Colombia's Anthony Zambrano and the evergreen James of Granada, not far short of his 29th birthday. Whether by intention or design, Gardner as the gold medalist from Tokyo and Finikuk as the gold medalist from Rio and the world record holder seemed to be being kept apart until the World Championships in Budapest through the second half of August. This is certainly good for the hype ahead of Budapest and will continue post-Budapest through the European winter all the way to next year's Paris Olympics. In the meantime, how has Finikok been doing? The short answer to that is that he appears to be approaching somewhere close to his best, although whether he'll ever be quick enough to be invisible again must be in doubt. This season, he's won seven times out of seven starts on the European and Middle East circuit, his most recent victory three weeks ago being both his most compelling and his most challenging. Competing in the London Olympic Stadium, he was pushed all the way to victory by the US athletes Bryce Dedman and Vernon Norwood, who came exceptionally close to nipping in front of him in the home straight. Afterwards, Finikok said that the last time he raced in London, he felt more, quote, in control of the event, a revealing admission. But he also added, by way of balance, that he was pleased, after being hounded by Deadman and Norwood, that, quote, there was more fight needed from me today, and I was glad that I could put up that fight. The Finikok quote suggests to me that the field in the men's 400 metres has become better stocked and more competitive since Finikok broke Johnson's world record seven years ago. In the coming days, he won't only have Gardner, the Olympic title holder to contend with, but Deadman and Norwood, and that's just the beginning of it. Seven years ago, Finikok was out on his own in lane eight. That isn't true anymore. And that's what makes the next year in his athletics career so compelling, as he battles to see whether he was the space cowboy he once was.
If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m.